Hello and welcome to ConstructorCast, your AGC place for news, views, and interviews relevant to you and the construction industry. I am your host, Alan Gray. On today's podcast, we will preview the upcoming midterm elections from the construction industry's perspective. The elections will determine which political party will hold a majority of each chamber of Congress for the next two years. Currently, the Democrats control both chambers, the Senate and House of Representatives. To help us understand the possible outcomes and ramifications of the elections, we are fortunate to have with us today AGC's Chief Executive Officer, Steve Sander, Jimmy Christensen, AGC's Vice President of Government Relations, and David Ajanoff, AGC's Director of Political Affairs. Welcome to ConstructorCast, gentlemen. Before we get to the upcoming elections, let's start off with a wrap-up of the current session of Congress. Jimmy, what has happened over the last two years that is good and bad for the construction industry and our members? Thanks, Alan. So I think that a lot of people are used to Congress doing nothing. And over the last two years, they've done a whole lot of something. I'm going to talk about some of the good things first. Number one, they passed a trillion dollar infrastructure bill on a bipartisan basis that included record amounts of funding for transportation, broadband construction, utility construction, as well as a host of other ways of getting out there and putting more money into programs that get uh, jobs going. So that's a really good thing that they finally did. We heard about this for the better part of at least a decade and a half, and we got it over the finish line. What you might hear on the campaign trail, obviously, is, well, 6% of that money actually is going to construction. I can guarantee you the vast majority of that money is going to breaking ground and construction put in place. And the other thing that you think about also is if we did not pass that bill in this inflationary environment, just how much more difficult it would be to continue to get the jobs that we need to do for the good of the nation and get them done. Uh, so that's one piece of good news there. In addition, we saw the American Rescue Plan Act enacted back in 2021. While there's a lot of concern about what was in that legislation and law, there's a $350 billion fund for state and local governments. And based on everything that we've seen reported from the Department of Treasury, the biggest amount of spend out of that is for infrastructure, water, sewer, broadband, transportation. Those funds are being used by states, localities, cities for infrastructure far and wide. So those are some good things that we've seen out of this Congress in the last two years. On the not so good side, we have the Inflation Reduction Act. And for the first time, something that for the reason why AGC opposed this law when it was legislation, is we have a private tax credit that's geared towards incentivizing a private development construction project and adding labor mandates. So that's something where we haven't seen this before in the federal tax code. The requirements that are actually dictating how construction contractors have to operate their jobs in order for owners to get tax credits. This is a slippery slope that we are opposed to, but we'll be working to sand off some of the edges with the Treasury Department as they're just beginning to contemplate putting together guidance and most recently put out a request for information seeking guidance on, for example, how to implement a prevailing wage requirement on 
a lot of these renewable energy and battery factories that are incentivized through these tax credits, as well as even more concerning registered apprenticeship mandate goals of 15% of the worker hours have to be from these registered apprentices. So those are some of the things that we've seen on the positive and the not so positive side. Granted, we do expect to see some record amounts of construction in the renewable energy and the manufacturing sphere, buoyed also by the CHIPS Act. You know, I'll put that also in the good column that included $39 billion for the construction of semiconductor chip plants uh, that we're seeing in states like Arizona, Texas, Ohio, and many others to help us get over the hump in some of the supply chain issues with semiconductor chips and really a boon for the construction industry in that market. Thank you. And what can we expect, if anything, before this session of Congress adjourns in December? I think we're going to see a lot of spaghetti being thrown on the wall and seeing what sticks. And the reality is probably not a whole heck of a lot. We still have to pass the annual defense bill that has passed the House and still has to be considered by the Senate. While you might think Congress is out, there are probably two or three senators on the floor currently not campaigning because they are debating the defense bill. And there are some 900 amendments that have been proposed, some of which do very bad things for the industry, some of which we want, like in change order reform, some of which will encourage on the negative side, blacklisting of contractors if they're even, you know, accused of wrongdoing, let alone actually cited and uh, found guilty. So no due process sort of considerations. These are the things that are still hanging out there that will have to be resolved. And the reality is in order to pass these things and fund our troops, they're going to have to probably wait for next year or for years down the line, because there's just not going to be an agreement to do that. The other big thing is obviously funding the government for the rest of the year, avoiding government shutdown. Uh, Also, where we might see some policy writers be talked about, but at the end of the day, if they want to go home in time for Christmas, uh, they're going to have to probably leave a lot of the policies that they espouse on either part on one side or the other at the drawing room table in order to get the business of the country done and the government funded. Thank you. Now let's move on to the midterm elections. And Steve and David, what are we expecting from the upcoming elections on November the 8th, the winners and losers? Well, Alan, this is Steve. I'll, uh, I won the coin flip. So I'll start off and then I'll invite David and Jimmy, my learned colleagues, to uh, tell me if I'm right or wrong. So first of all, I'm going to ask them to stipulate that the House is going to flip to the Republicans. True or not? True. True. Okay. In making that prediction, a few factors, I think, play into that. One is, if you look at the real clear politics House map, they've already given 220 districts to uh, Republicans and identify 35 additional toss-up seats of which Republicans are only defending five of those. So even if you take that 220, and based upon the political environment and the dynamics of this election, it's likely that the Republicans are going to win the majority, if not nearly all of those toss-up seats, which will give them a majority. And then I'll ask Jimmy, 
it's one thing to have a majority. It's quite another to have a governing majority. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges for the Republicans in the House, because when you have, let's say, a diverse coalition in the House Republican caucus, you get a lot of free agents who don't back the leadership. And frankly, some of them are more interested in performance than they are in policy. And that comes up the works to the extent that the forces must pass legislation such as the Defense Authorization Act or appropriations bills, continuing resolutions to fund the government. The Republican leadership has to go and try to cajole some Democrats to support passage of the bill, which gives those Democrats lots of leverage in having things added to the bill. So, Jimmy, what do you think the sweet spot would be for the Republicans to get enough votes to be able to mitigate the challenges of, uh, let's call them rogue members in their caucus? Well, Steve, I think they're going to have to win almost every one of those toss-ups because those toss-ups are in seats that you have a lot of moderate Republicans that ultimately have to govern and campaign the same in the, from the middle, as opposed to the folks that are in a lot of the safer seats where they're campaigning from the far right and their biggest challenge is on the primary side, not the general election. So I think the reality is the vast majority of those toss-ups have to go in the Republican way to give the new Republican leader the best chance to actually govern and accomplish the most basic functions of government, which is to fund the government and to fund our troops, uh, among other things. And I just want to point out, you could have been talking about the Democratic Party too, because they face these same issues with their extreme. And it's really a, a new environment that we're in where the far fringes are controlling as opposed to what we've seen historically by more leverage being made from the, the middle, which has really made it more difficult to govern. And we'll see what happens here and the elections are going to dictate a lot of that. Well, before I ask David for his opinion, I, I would differ with you a little bit on, yes, the Democrats had the challenge over the last few years in getting to 218 votes on some big pieces of legislation, in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act, which started out as being known as the Build Back Better Plan. And you probably will recall there was an effort at the beginning of that where you had about 20 to 25 House Democrats that said there was no way they would vote for that budget reconciliation bill unless there was a repeal of the so-called SALT tax, the state and local tax deduction, which pinches higher income people in blue states. And they swore up and down that there was no way they'd vote for that bill uh, unless that was in it. Well, guess what? It wasn't in it. And all of them fell in line. The party discipline, I think, is much stronger in the Democratic side than it is on the Republican side. Would you acknowledge that? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's definitely true. I think they're probably a few years behind where the Republicans are with the Tea Party movement back in over a little over a decade ago. And in the Republican Party, the fringe is a little more mature. I'm not going to say in, in just in duration as opposed to in attitude than the Democratic side that's still 
the, the progressives are continually gaining more power, but not necessarily as much power or resolve as the conservatives on the far right. I would agree with you there. David, so what's your, what's your take on the House elections? Well, before I get into that, just a, a point on what you and Jimmy were just talking about, you know, in terms of that ability for one side or the other to sort of push that legislation or to push a direction in the House, I think at least on the Republican side, you just need to look back at the two last speakers that they've had, whether that's John Boehner and Paul Ryan, and you had, you know, conservative voices in their caucus pushing out those two speakers where you really haven't seen any sort of effort like that on on the Democratic side, because, you know, I'd love to see them try to do that against Nancy Pelosi, because I just can't see that happening with her as the speaker and power that she maintains and the grip on her party. So what do you think about the House races? What do you think the number is going to be? Uh, how many Republicans will be sworn in in January in the House? You know, I think if we go back to earlier in the election cycle when everyone was expecting this red tsunami to, to happen, and certainly it looked like the political forces were positioning that to happen. But after the Dobbs decision, after a number of other issues that have you know percolated to the surface, and then you couple that with all of the economic indicators that are, are sort of helping to move the election, you know I certainly believe Republicans will pick up the House majority. I don't believe it's you know, at this point going to look at something larger than maybe 25 seats, but something maybe in the realm of 18 to 25 would be, I think, a good pickup for them come election night in this November. So by that scenario, you're talking about 228, 229 Republican mm-hmm. seats because they're at 204 right now. So, which again raises the question, is that margin of 10, nine or 10 seats enough to have a governing majority? And I guess we'll, we'll see. So I think one interesting point to raise on the House races that uh, I was surprised to read about is that Trump in 2020 only carried 209 congressional districts. That's like the baseline you would think for Republicans. So you've got that baseline from them to build on. And then, so let's turn to the Senate then. We essentially have three different scenarios that could play out. Again, acknowledging that the House is going to flip to the Republicans from the Democrats. The three scenarios are status quo, a 50-50 split Senate, which essentially gives the Democrats the majority with the vice president breaking the tie, the Republicans picking up a net gain of one or two seats, and the Democrats picking up a net gain of perhaps one seat. So all of those depend upon how the toss-up races play out. So you essentially have eight toss-up races. You have Wisconsin, Republican incumbent running again, You have North Carolina, an open seat. You have Nevada, incumbent Democrat. You have Ohio, an open seat. You have Pennsylvania, an open seat. You have Arizona, an incumbent Democrat. And you have Georgia, an incoming Democrat. So a lot of folks think that because Ohio has really turned more red in recent years, and even though the candidate there, J.D. Vance, is running way behind the Republican governor, Mike DeWine, running for re-election. A lot of prognosticators are putting that seat in the, the lean Republican. So, David, what do you think about that? I think you're pretty 
much on the, the mark for that. You know, right now, I can see it going either way, whether that's a 50-50 Senate, a one to two pickup for Republicans or that that one seat pickup for Democrats. You know, when you're looking at the races by state, whether that's Arizona with Senator Mark Kelly and venture capitalist Blake Masters, looking back over the election, no major poll has had Blake Masters ahead. And so I think that's certainly something that leans towards Arizona, most likely staying in the Democratic column at the moment. If anything, you know, there's certainly the possibility that something breaks late and that moves the election there. I just can't see him getting over that hurdle if he hasn't been able to do that as of yet. You know, you go down to Georgia with Senator Raphael Warnock and Georgia football legend Herschel Walker. Warnock's up 48 over Walker, 44. You know, he's led in the last polls between two and 12 points. I think that was in the last five of the six polls that I've looked at. The senators raised more than $26 million in the last quarter alone. To put that amount in perspective, that is more than what Kay Hagan raised in her entire 2013-2014 election cycle. And so I, despite, you know, I think having all of that money, while Warnock's been able to move the needle a bit, Walker is certainly staying in there. But I think the most recent revelations about his personal life and his family life are, are sort of moving that needle a bit more to the Senator Warnock's favor. Then you go down to Nevada, which I think is the best place for Republicans to pick up a seat where you have the, the former uh, Attorney General Adam Laxalt uh, actually ahead of current Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Uh, and he's led in the last six polls between one and four points. And I think then it gets a little bit more difficult uh, where you go up to like New Hampshire with Senator Maggie Hassan. She's leading the Republican candidate, retired Brigadier General Don Bulldog by about 49 to 44 all polls have had her up uh, between three and 11 points. Okay. Um, then you look at North Carolina, right. where that's an open seat race between Congressman Ted Budd and retired Chief Justice of the state Supreme Court there, Sherry Beasley. But he's also led in the last four to six polls by between one and three points. Pennsylvania, I think it gets a bit more difficult for Republicans looking to flip that seat. Got the, the current lieutenant governor on the ballot, John Fetterman, against surgeon and TV personality, Mehmet um, Oz. No major poll has shown Oz leading that race. But what we've seen recently mm-hmm. is that he's starting to do better in that race as Oz is starting to tick up in the polls. That certainly has the ability to overtake him at a late breaking opportunity. But again, I think that's going to be a, a difficult uh, flip if, if things don't start breaking soon. Uh, and then, of course, Wisconsin, where you've got uh, the incumbent Senator Ron Johnson leading Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Um, and the last six of the seven polls have had Johnson up. So if you're going to look at them all together, I think really your, your biggest opportunity to flip either way would be Nevada for Republicans and then looking at uh, Pennsylvania for Democrats. Okay. Well, I'm going to be bold and make predictions here. If you take the baseline of 46 Republican Senate seats, I'm going to add Ohio. I think the dynamics in Ohio, the trending more and more Republican, that gets you to 47. I think Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who in his past two elections, never there was never a public poll that showed him ahead. And now he's up in public polls, uh, one to three points. And he's running against, a, would say, a weak candidate who's getting hammered on the crime issue. So that gets you to 48. 
I think North Carolina Ted Budd wins. That gets you to 49. And I think Nevada, as you mentioned, and I think correctly, is the best opportunity for a Republican pickup. So that gets you to 50 for the Republicans. So that leaves, as you mentioned, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. If the Republicans can, and as you've also mentioned, all three of the Republican candidates in those races have their challenges. But do you see a scenario where the red wave benefits candidates that it may perhaps an ordinary cycle can prevail? Yeah, I certainly see that happening. And I'm not ruling out the opportunities for Blake Masters, Mohammed Oz, or Herschel Walker. They certainly can mm-hmm. win those races. And potentially all three of them have that opportunity to do so. I think if you're looking at what they're doing on their campaigns, the messaging that they're putting out there, if they're hitting the issues that voters want to hear about, especially in the middle, then it certainly, I think, helps their cause because you're really not seeing those issues getting played on the Democratic side. And those issues, whether they be inflation, crime, jobs and unemployment, and a bit of immigration, when you're looking at across the board, Republicans and and independents really are focusing in on those issues where on the Democratic side, you're seeing abortion, gun control, and climate change being their top issues in terms of what they're looking for from candidates. So if Republicans are hitting that message on inflation, they're hitting that message on jobs, they're doing the same on crime, I think it's certainly going to be something that helps all three of them. And I think they're all doing that based on what I've seen in their ads. Uh, And you're right about the polls in terms of what they've seen uh, in the last election cycle, where you go back to Susan Collins, senator from Maine, she didn't lead in any poll was down four to seven points on election day and walked away with 51% of the vote. But you look in North Carolina, where all four polls showed Joe Cunningham ahead on election day, but then you see Senator Tom Tillis scoring a 49-47 win. So that's certainly possible to happen again this cycle. The question is, can a lot of these first-time candidates actually get over that hump and get to that positive territory in that election? I think it's certainly possible. If you were going to sort of rank which ones could possibly go first, uh, I'd probably look towards Arizona, then Georgia, and and maybe Pennsylvania. Okay. So let's assume that red wave is a tsunami. Are there any other races that you would keep your eye on the possibility of a Republican pickup? Well, we've got to keep our eye on Colorado. We've got uh, our AGC member and and Colorado Contractors Association member, Joe O'Day, running in that Senate race out there against Senator Mike Bennett. That is certainly the possible sleeper race of this cycle. In mid-August, the Cook Political Report moved that race from a likely Democratic rating to a lean Democratic rating. And if things you know, were breaking towards Republicans, you, you could certainly see that moving maybe more towards a, a toss-up opportunity and you know, hopefully get another member uh, into to Congress who understands the construction industry. So, Jimmy, with that being said... Tell us how you think Congress will operate under the three scenarios. So let's go with the status quo, 50-50 Senate, Republican House. What can happen? 50-50 Senate with uh, Vice President Harris breaking the tie is still a Democratic Senate. We'll see a lot of what we've seen in the past of focus on nominees to the judicial branch by Democrats, where Senator Schumer has 
really done or even outdone perhaps his uh, predecessor in confirming justices, uh, Mitch McConnell, at the district and appeals court level. I would expect a whole heck of a lot more of that for the Biden nominees to the court, first and foremost. Uh, Secondly, knowing that there's a Republican House, I would expect a lot of messaging for 2024. Not too much hope on the legislating, maybe a little bit, but not a whole heck of a lot. You know, the things that we're looking at is the FAA reauthorization and honestly just ensuring that the gains that we made in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act remain, you know, ensuring that the Republicans in the House don't necessarily look to cut from that bill. Uh, as again, those funds are needed to just account for the cost of inflation. So I would expect a a few things there. You know, the other thing, obviously, which we could see before the end of the year uh, is more efforts to legalize marijuana at the federal level. And even a Democratic led either 50 50 or with a majority of one or two seats, you know, focus on same sex marriage. And more on the social side, necessarily, than on on anything else, really looking towards 2024 and defending presidency in a lot of cases. So what about, Jimmy, what about oversight in the House? Well, that's where we'd really look for a Republican Senate, where you get at least 51 seats in the Senate, but at, at a minimum in the House. I think the one thing, Steve, that will unite Republicans is to perform oversight of this administration, which has really gone two years without any. And in a lot of cases, we're seeing regulation after regulation without really consideration for whether something is even legal, let alone reasonable and sensible from the business aspect. And that's going to come time for the Republicans to unite and start looking at things like the implementation of Buy America in such a way where it's hard enough to find materials anywhere that can be delivered on time, let alone within several weeks as opposed to 52 or more weeks, or looking towards the addition of labor mandates to various projects that may or may not be in the interests of economy and efficiency, like government mandated project labor agreements and the executive order the president is implementing there. So a whole host of things for oversight that from a perspective of our industry that can really help shed some light on some things to provide the perspective of the business community. For the last few years, uh, Democrats have been pushing for elimination of the filibuster rule in the Senate, which requires 60 votes to pass most legislation. Republicans take the House. You think that fever goes away? I think magically, yes, that fever is uh, is cured. Mm-hmm. That desire to try to get rid of the filibuster goes away, especially knowing in 24, the fact that Democrats have a whole heck of a lot more seats than Republicans in 2024 to defend. And in a presidential year with a president that's underwater in approval ratings, it's going to be really hard to maintain whatever slim majority or 50-50 Senate in 24. So why they would want to get rid of the filibuster and to hand it to potentially a Republican-controlled Senate, House, and President 
does not make sense. So I, I think we're going to hear that fever pitch crack. Okay. So in any of the three scenarios, uh, or all three of the scenarios, I should say, a 50-50 Senate plus the Republican House, a Republican majority of one or two seats in a Republican House, and a Democratic majority with maybe a margin of one, does any legislation get done? Or is it just going to be posturing oversight and laying the groundwork for the 24 election? I don't think you're going to see as big a bill's necessarily pass as we've seen in the last Congress. You know, there's an opportunity for both sides to come to agreement. Uh, As my colleague Jim Young would like to say, there's one thing that's constantly been missing from the debate that kind of is always a bridesmaid and never the bride, and that is workforce development funding, which we saw as a key component of the Build Back Better Act, which we've seen in various bills that are, are in a bipartisan support and agreement for and there's opportunities to, to really make some inroads there because both parties see an opportunity there to reach across the aisle and get a win for the American people. And I do think on workforce development that we could see some movement. On the other side of the coin, immigration reform, we've been here before where there's Democratic Senate and a Republican House or even a Republican Senate and a Republican House, as you remember all too well, Steve, in 2013 with immigration reform, the Senate passed immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform with, you know, 70 votes. And then the Republicans in the House didn't even take it up. I could foresee a similar issue happening there, but I don't even think we get to discuss it in the Senate. Uh, Maybe with the exception of DACA and TPS because of what's going on with the courts, but it's going to be really hard as both parties seem to be more interested in using this as a wedge issue than solving problems. But I do think it's something that we will continue to beat the drum on hard. Okay. With all that in mind, does that just accelerate the regulatory machine in the agencies? Oh, yeah. There's there's nothing quite like an administration right before an election, whether it's running for re-election or its last term in office. We should expect a lot of things to come out of this administration. They still have to look at uh, various ways to accomplish their climate agenda, uh, which, you know, our whole issue is that's great that you want contractors to use buy clean, low emission materials. Our issue, like supply chain, is are they available? How do we get them? Can owners afford to pay for them? You know, can we get an answer from any public entity that requires them? when they're not available so that we can move forward and find a path to actually get the job done. You know, these are the things that we're going to be looking for uh, as as we we go through this. We're we're already planning to be in court over the government-mandated PLA executive order and its implementation. We're looking at ways to find reason and to help the Republicans in the House conduct oversight and buy America and ensuring that we can find the things that we need. It's all there for us as an opportunity in this next Congress to play essentially, I'll say guerrilla warfare in a split Congress where you can probably find a few smaller wins than a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, but could still have great meaning in blocking some negative policies, be it a small rider in a uh, 
appropriations bill that can perhaps block any implementation of uh, something that is harmful to the industry. All right. So, uh, Alan, I've totally usurped your authority as host. I know you have some additional questions, so I'm going to toss it back to you. Yeah, outstanding conversation, and, and I appreciate that. Turning now to AGC's robust advocacy representing the construction industry, David, what can our members do to get involved, and how critical is it for them to support our efforts? Well, the first thing I'd say with the election just a, a couple weeks away is, one, make sure you're registered to vote. If you're not already registered, uh, confirm that registration status to make sure that you're all good to, to go, uh, either vote early or via absentee or on uh, election day to get that information before you decide to head to the polls to see who's on the ballot so you can make an informed decision. And most importantly, uh, again, if you can't be there on, on Tuesday, November 8th to to vote early or request an absentee ballot. And the good thing is, is that AGC has uh, constructionvotes.com where you can visit that site or text AGC to 52888 and get those resources where you can register online, confirm that status, get that early voting information, and then confirm your polling place location as well. So that's the first thing I'd say. In addition to making sure that you're ready to go vote and have that information, I'd highly encourage our, our listeners to look into learning more about AGC PAC and the Construction Advocacy Fund, two great advocacy programs uh, sponsored by AGC of America. AGC PAC is the National Political Action Committee of the Association. It's what we use to support candidates who are running for federal elected office who, you know, regardless of party affiliation, understand the construction industry, the specific needs, interests, and concerns uh, of AGC member firms and their employees. It's what we use to create a, a number of champions up on Capitol Hill so that uh, when our issues and priorities do arise up there, that we've got folks there who are willing to help push our issues and hopefully get them into law. Second, with the, the Construction Advocacy Fund, this is what the association uses to fund all of its uh, advocacy efforts. It's what we use to litigate in the courts to fight the laws, rules, and precedents that threaten the construction industry. It's what we use to get the research that we need to have that right data to make the case for vital legislative measures and, of course, against unneeded and costly regulations. It's what we use to lobby, to assemble, and to lead coalitions on really key construction priorities to really effectively influence the folks that are making the decisions. Uh, and of course, it's what we use to impact voters and office holders through our advocacy campaigns, our get out the vote efforts, our public relations activities to really advance construction policy and political goals. And if folks are interested in learning more about those two programs, I'd highly encourage them to visit advocacy.agc.org. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. To everyone out there, we appreciate you listening. This has been AGC Constructor Cast. Please subscribe to Constructor Cast from your podcast app or stream all episodes from your computer or device at agc.org slash constructorcast. If you found value in today's episode, please give us a rating and write a review. This will help others find the show. And don't forget, you can follow us on social media at LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram simply by searching Associated General Contractors. Or you can use our handle, at AGC of A. Again, thank you very much for joining us, and stay safe.